0: Uh, Hi, it's me here. Hello, Slovoi. Okay, wait a minute. I will just try to make the voice so that I hear you okay. Do you hear me all right? Do you hear me all right? Oh, you sound great. Okay, okay. No, I don't sound great. I sound, you know, we in Slovenia, we have a wonderful vulgar sounding, vulgar phrase. When somebody looks or sounds bad, bad, no? Uh Uh-huh say, you look as if somebody just pulled you out of a cow's ass, you know, like, that's how I feel now.
1: The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into?
0: The material relations between people... Become social relations between
1: things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't. We see still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero squared is the Zero Books podcast. Slovoj Žižek is a guest this week, and we discuss the flack he's received for a few of his Lacanian interventions into politics recently, Marx's labor theory of value, and Žižek's most current book, Against the Double Blackmail. Longtime listeners will know that Žižek's ideas have haunted this podcast since the beginning, and his appearing as a guest marks a moment wherein we may have traversed the fantasy. That is, Žižek said hello. I asked him my questions, but in the end I discovered that, surprise, he is not only not the droid I was looking for, but, and forgive me for mixing my metaphors, the cake is always already a lie. It's Wednesday, January 11th, 2016, and I'm Douglas Lane, the publisher of Zero Books and the host of this podcast. Before we begin, I want to thank our Zero Books Club members, uh, Zero Books Club members, gain access to the Inside Zero Books podcast and are invited to participate in online workshops in critical theory. Now is always a good time to join. This episode does not feature any sound collages or clips except for this one right here. The music you're listening to, it's called Raggle Taggle by A Hawk and a Hacksaw. But in just a moment, you'll be listening to Slovoj Zizek and I discuss the double blackmail. Slovoj Zizek is a Slovenian psychoanalytic philosopher, cultural critic, and Hegelian Marxist. He is a professor at several universities, including the University of Ljubljana and NYU. A frequent lecturer and something of a YouTube star, he is the author of many many books, including *The Sublime Object of Ideology*, *A Defense of Lost Causes*, *Less Than Nothing*, and most recently *Against the Double Blackmail*, which is the book we'll be discussing today. Slavoj Zizek, thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the Zero Books podcast. The, the
0: honor is my thank you, and if you understand it correctly, you are speaking from Portland. Portland, Oregon, yes. Portland is, yes, I know, you know that Portland is my favorite city in the U.S. Well, it should be. You know why? Because it's very, maybe even conservative European, but it's the right size. It has a nice downtown that you can cover up with walking, and of course, my God, it has the bookstore, Yes, no, yes. I it will survive. Powell, Powell Powell's, of, or Powell's what?
1: books. Yes, the city of books, and I moved here oh, 25 years ago when I was a, a younger person than I am now, and um, went to Powell's books and decided I, I was going to stay here forever. So, no, but everything. I
0: was there just to feel the city a couple of two three years ago with my son and we stayed at some stupid luxury hotel, but it was such a nice walk to Powell's books, and my son was surprised. Like, it's not only the usual stuff. He was looking about some things, about mathematics. He loved it, philosophy. They have excellent translations of all possible detective novels and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's not lose time. Just right, no, to tell right. you that Portland is better than uh, definitely... Better than Seattle. Seattle is overrated,
1: if you ask me. As a Portlander, I completely agree. Yes, I just want to start by saying one of my followers and friends on Facebook asked me to let you know that there's something called the Slovoj Žižek Dank Meme Stash. Now, this is a a Facebook group that's uh, dedicated to you and to lovingly mocking you. I guess it's a way for a particular kind of person to find other people like themselves. I don't know if it's a perverse dating site or what, but now I've done that. I've mentioned it to you, and I guess I want to ask you, how do you cope with being a celebrity philosopher?
0: I, I hate it more and more, not out of kind of hypocrisy. I'm not playing that guy, you know, who says, oh, I would like mod- modestly to work uh, write books. But I am more and more convinced that it is a way to neutralize me, you know, to say he's a funny guy, blah, blah. But the message is always of this so-called celebrity stuff, not uh, to take me too seriously, especially combined with another thing. People often say, oh, I'm a big, big celebrity, blah, blah. But I'm sorry to tell you, it doesn't any, <laughs> not even minimal power position. You know that, for example, I will not name names, I don't want to embarrass people. But do you know that because of these LGBT attacks on me, two people lost their jobs and three were threatened to lose their jobs. I know of people, again, I will not name them, who were applying for a job. And my recommendation letter not only didn't help them, but was their ruin. Like they almost got the job. I learned afterwards through my spies in that committee, whatever that decides. But I was told that somebody then says, oh, it was not that what I wrote was inappropriate. I know how to write in official style and so on. But the idea was just if someone like me supports the guy, there must be something wrong with the guy. No, you know why this annoys me? Because I am at the same time presented as a kind of a big academic star, blah, blah. Listen, academic power, as you probably know better than me, is measured today at two, three levels. A, can you provide jobs? B, can you provide some uh, uh, funding for, for, I don't know, uh, for some um, institutes and so on, uh, grants? And three, can you provide publications in the sense that you write to a... Publishing house, they will publish your uh, the guy's book. I'm completely, okay. I would say completely, but very, very powerless in all these three domains. Well, so you. Know, well, yeah. like it would be nice to once to begin to measure, like who really is in this elementary sense who stands for power in academia. For example, we Lacanians are often mocked by LGBT or uh, others, feminists, that we are the patriarchal, Lacan, name of the father, power, and so on and so on. Sorry, but we are so dispersed and alone. I, ma- I mention you know, how is the guy called uh, Hillary Nero- Neroni and Todd McGowan, a couple who lives in Burlington with Harry Sanders, with, sorry, Bernie Sanders, practically, they have a small department of cinema and media. Why do I mention them? They are the only department in the entire United States, I think even in the world, where they, who, who are, in a way, Lacanian cultural studies guys, are head and his wife helps him of a department.
1: You know, I, you've been saying things that are similar to this for a, a while, but it seems to me that maybe the pressure on you lately is worse
0: yeah but i i don't i don't blend now you we are i know slowly arriving to your first uh, question no i don't retreat i'm more and more firm in it i will not retreat i stay totally behind what i was saying and especially my point is how people not in the sense that they were evil or stupid, but willfully misread what I was saying. My point, my God, is a pretty elementary one. First, I always empathize. I mean, I have detailed analysis in past books, in texts that I write now, what's the danger of Trump? As, and, and as I emphasize, Trump is not only dangerous at the level of content, you know, but even as I emphasize at the level of forum, in the sense of he stands for this, and I think crazy as it may sound, this is more and more important today, this regression vulgarization of the public discourse. You can say today things that it was not possible to tell them 10, 20 years ago. Not only my standard examples where, for example, Torture is a legitimate topic today, and so on. But many, many others. So, of course, Trump embodied this vulgarization. And I think there is a great irony in this, and maybe a chance for us. I don't like the term, but let's call ourselves progressives. You know why? Because till now, or not till now, let's say when I was young, it was, I remember, 68 uh, so-called revolution, liberation, It was the official public speech. People, persons in power spoke this official polite language and so on. And it was the standard leftist provocation to throw in a fuck you here, there, some vulgar word to show that we are not the stiff official guy, you know, and so on. No, but today it's the opposite. It's those in power who speak more and more in a vulgar way. And I'm totally for making a crazy move which even, it's not just a rhetorical move. Don't you think there is a grain of truth in it that today, common vulgarity, obscenities are the staff of the new populist right. It's we, the leftist, who should be, who should speak with, and I use here this term without, hopefully it's a conservative connotation, we should be the true moral majority standing for simple decency, don't humiliate other. you know, all that stuff and so on.
1: Last week, I had on a, a woman named Amber Ollie Frost, and she is part of what she calls the dirtbag left. And they're kind of um, Bernie Sanders supporters, and they their whole aim is to break free from a certain constraint that political correctness or oversensitivity might put on the left and be able to talk frankly. And, you know, they use vulgarities. They, they kind of take pride. No, and- no, no. I, I, I am for political correctness. But for me, sorry to interrupt you, because this
0: is a crucial theoretical point. It's central point in my next short political book. Uh, I'm not accusing here political correctness. I mean, to be frank, although I attack it uh, quite a lot, uh, I'm well aware that this is a sincere attempt. I don't doubt that most of them are sincere and so on and so on. My problem is this one. Manners function insofar as they are, and I don't want to mystify this word, but spontaneous in the sense that, you know, when you act really politely, you don't follow explicit rules. Some You just know that some things shouldn't be said done. In this sense, maybe you've heard it, to provoke my enemies, I like to to present myself as a great defender of dogmatism. Not dogmatism, of course, in a stupid religious ideological sense, but dogmatism in the sense that for me, a measure of, if I may use this term, which is very problematic, I know, moral progress is that some things become self-evident. You don't have to argue for them. For example, a standard feminist example. I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to argue again and again that women shouldn't be raped. I wouldn't like to live in a society when when some uh, male person says, you know, this old vulgar obscenity. Yeah, but you know, sometimes you have to be a little bit forceful because women pretend they don't like it, but they really enjoy when you are brutal with them and so on. <coughs> I would like to live in a society where when somebody says something like this, he's simply dismissed and mocked as an idiot, you know. I, I, and the same goes for torture. I, I prefer it, you remember 30, 40 years ago it was It was simply impossible in public space to argue for torture. Now you can, and so on. And so back to this. So I, when these implicit standards of what Hegel called sittlichkeit not so much personal morality as unwritten rules of public mores, customs, and so on. When this is disintegrating, then and it's rather a tragic thing, I'm not criticizing it, then political correctness tries to regulate this decay with explicit rules, you know. Don't say black, say African-American, and so on and so on. At a certain level, of course, we should be doing it. But we should at the same time be aware that ultimately this doesn't work. Doesn't work in the sense that Just take a look at how language actually works. I mean, it's not the word black guy as such, which is automatically racist. It depends in a racist context. African-American can work even in a more racist way. You You always play, because it all depends on context as, okay, I will tell you something which I love. The guy at whose face I am looking now, Adorno. Yeah, know? right, right.
1: Yeah. That's
0: when my- he criticized Hollywood, mm-hmm. he said something wonderful. Maybe you know it. I don't know where. I don't think it's in culture industry passages of the Electric of Enlightenment. Yeah. He said that a great film would be somehow a movie which would have obeyed, followed all the Hayes Code rules. You know, the Hollywood standard rules prohibiting mention of this on that and so on, mm-hmm. but not as a censorship tool, as a kind of a spontaneous self limitation, like as good manners, not as censorship and so on, you know. So, again, to return to your point, uh, this is for me the tragedy that uh, uh, the right wing populist vulgarity and political correctness go hand in hand, I claim, and the big art, and can be done, and here I would probably immediately agree with the the lady you mentioned, would have been, you know, the great art is, of course, to use obscenities and so on. For me, as I always emphasize, I doubt if it's really possible, at least in the majority of cases to have an authentic contact with another human being without some exchange of obscenity and so on. But the art is to do it in a non-racist, non-oppressive way. The miracle, everybody who has real contact with other races and so on knows that it's possible. That's the true art.
1: Well, I agree with you. But only return to Trump. So I okay. well. Well, I wanna, you know, I'm noticing it that you've uh, you have said or confessed in public before that sometimes um, you you speak for a long time in order to avoid questions, and I feel like that may be happening today. But, uh, no, no,
0: no. But here I'm fully ready. Okay, I
1: know, I know. So let me just ask the question though about yes. Trump. Um, do you re- you don't regret taking that that contrarian position about Trump that he was a less dangerous U.S. presidential candidate? Um it sounds like you said that already yes i i, I feel that he's a some sort of dangerous proto fascist really that he you know if you look at at him and then the rest of what's happening in europe and um what may happen in in France with the rise of of the le pen that he is uniquely dangerous and that we might have been better off with the status quo for a few more years rather than facing this threat.
0: Yeah, and get an even stronger Trump, because what I think is this. Let me, I have, at three levels, I have a problem with this standard opinion. First, okay, I cannot go into it into detail now, but although I was sometimes doing it, namely, what is it? Using this fascist, proto-fascist term, and so on. I think that this is, in Basically, I'm more and more critical towards the use of this term fascism. Why? Because I think it repeats one of the worst habits of the left. Something new and obviously dangerous is emerging and out of laziness, instead of analyzing what is going on here and now, in a very easy way, you use the old term. Oh, it's proto-fascism, new fascism, and so on. I'm not saying it's less dangerous, but it's not fascism. Fascism needs, first point, fascism needs an enemy like the Jews' financial capital or whatever. But, and although I'm very critical towards the work, you must know that Chicago Marxist Moishe Postone.
1: Yes, I do know him.
0: Yeah, I know his problems with Israel and so on. But he made nonetheless recently one excellent point. He says, even the worst white supremacists do not accuse, for example, here in Europe, uh, 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 Muslim immigrants or with you Mexicans, that they secretly dominate the world or whatever. No, they are chaotic invasion and so on, they are not, contemporary populism does not build as the enemy a figure which even vaguely fits the figure of the Jew. Or, let me be more precise, it does up to a point, but then we enter the level of madness. Namely, do you know that, I don't know how is it in United States, but in Europe now, We are getting, in my own country, Slovenia, in France, in Germany and so on, an extreme right which does something which is so horrible that out of my perverted taste I almost admire it. Namely, they claim that there is really no conflict between Muslims and Jews, that it's all the same plot. Behind the Muslim evasion of Europe are the Jews, George Soros and so on, they just stage the conflict among themselves to delude us, to make to distract our attention, so so that we don't notice how the Muslim invasion of Europe is the darkest Zionist plot to destroy European Christianity. I mean, you know, it's a wonderful tasteless horror. And uh, so, uh, so what I'm saying is that. Uh, Again, the point is not to say it's uh, it's, it's not as dangerous as, but it's a different, that's the first thing. The enemy is not the fascist enemy. The second thing is uh, uh, the problem with, you know who is for me a figure, I often mention him, which is for me the ultimate figure of, at least in Europe, anti-immigrant populism. Maybe you heard about him, I think he was killed some 10 years ago, Pim Fortuyn, the Dutch anti-immigrant populist. Mm -hmm. But you know what was he? He was a gay multiculturalist and so on. And his whole anti-immigrant movement was based on the fact that Muslims should not be allowed to enter because they are a threat precisely to our multicultural openness and so on and so on and so on. And my spies told me, are you aware that there are already the beginnings of conflict between within LGBT plus, however you call it, movement? Do you know, in my next book, I will quote the data. That there are already some Aryan LGBT groups which base their anti Islam orientation on the fact that it's only in our Western Christian culture that we can openly be LGBT and so on. In Muslim countries, you cannot do it and so on and so on. Now, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, that LGBT, I totally support in its goals LGBT and so on. What I'm, what I'm just saying is that. <laughs> this new populism and anti-immigrant racism is something much more dangerous. It will not be, my God, the old fascism. It will be more something that I'm tempted to call liberal fascism. Second thing, in spite of all horror at Trump, I, for example, in New York, I was two months ago at a round table, and there a guy, one of the representatives of that crazy, how is it called, Bob Avakian, Revolutionary Communist Party, started to shout at
1: me, claiming,
0: but you don't see, it's not only threat of fascism, we already are in a fascist state in the United States. Well, I would really like him to live for just for a month or two in a real fascist state. No, No, no. What I'm saying is that I, again, I openly admit I may be wrong, but my wager was this one. First, I'm not saying the United States is a great democracy, but it's a relatively complex, pluralistic state with, with many seats of power, trends, contradictions, and so on. So my wager was this one A, with all its danger, Trump does not pose uh, real, he may pose an enormous, I agree Chomsky, ecological threat and so on. Who knows what his economy will do, but I don't think he poses a real fascist threat. But, and that was my point, and on this I insist. Trump is a symptom. Symptom in the sense that isn't it clear that the way his populism exploded, the way he found support with many so-called ordinary people and so on was the same dissatisfaction out of which grew Bernie Sanders and so on. So for me, the crucial thing is that Donald Trump is a symptom of the fake democratic liberal left of Hillary Clinton and so on. So that's my, my entire point. If we, if something doesn't happen with the Democratic Party, if Democratic Party doesn't move a little bit more in the direction, for example, of Bernie Sanders, then we will not get rid of Trump. Maybe not Trump, but another one. And you mentioned Europe. I will give you same examples here. For example, do you know a little bit the situation in Poland when also right-wing nationalist party uh, uh, justice and I don't know what law uh, that Kaczynski brother is in power. It's so interesting. You know what they did? Their right-wing populists in power, in the last year of their power, they enacted the strongest social transfers in the history of Poland. No leftist even dares to do it. They lowered the retirement rate. They uh, made high, how do you call this, maternity contribution. When a woman has a child, it gets some money, two childs, more money. Mm-hmm. They lowered the retirement rate they made better conditions for healthcare and so on and so on. And that's what Marine Le Pen promises. That's the horror that while on the one hand, when the liberal moderate left, when they take power, of course they do all this politically correct stuff, gay rights, abortion, blah, blah. But in matters of economy, it's usually the moderate left which does the austerity while in Europe this place is now more and more occupied by the new populist right, and you cannot just accuse them. That's the horror, at least in the case of Poland. And if you listen carefully to her, Marine Le Pen is doing the same. Yeah. She's promising great social transfers, help to the workers, and so on and so on. Isn't this a sad, tragic situation?
1: No, d- I, I, I tell you, slowly, the thing is, what you're saying makes perfect sense to me, but it actually makes me worry that... Trump and le Pen and others are more fascist than you're letting on because my understanding is that uh, fascists tend to be Keynesian they tend not to be you know this kind of neoliberal um, e- economic politician there I agree, but then all the more isn't
0: it clear where this fascism what opens up the space for this fascism that the left doesn 't do it that the left Obsessed with political correct stuff doesn't do that. And it can do. Isn't Bernie Sanders the living proof that it's, that's for me, the miracle of Bernie Sanders. He did what nobody thought it's possible to do. He mobilized the same, okay, not quite the same, but he mobilized the same, let's call it popular unease and so on that Trump did. And that's the only answer. What I think is a catastrophe is this, and I see already these two reactions predominating in the Democratic Party. On the one hand, this fear of Trump, Trump, the end of the world, blah, blah. On the other hand, and I find this quite logical. Did you notice, this is for me the true danger. Did you notice the last, it was about a couple of weeks ago, statements by Nancy Pelosi? She's renormalizing the situation. Her line was, listen, every from time to time we get a big Republican conservative figure. it was Reagan, it was Bush, now it's Trump. Don't worry, they will screw it up. in eight years we are back and so on and so on. right That's the horror. She's renormalizing Trump right And I find it so typical because this either Trump is the ultimate horror or renormalizing Trump are both ways to avoid this, I'm sorry to use this old Stalinist term, self-criticism. That's my point. The key to defeating Trump, and okay, I even, maybe you noticed it, I said just for a couple of days that stupidity, I support Trump. My official party line in an article published in Indie Times was don't vote, you know. Mm-hmm. I quoted that wonderful novel by Saramago on seeing or whatever, no? But I'm just saying this, that I'm ready to change my mind, but don't you agree that in the long term, it's the same in Europe. The way to beat Trump, Le Pen, and so on, is to do a little bit of self-criticism to change our politics, to address uh, uh, worries of ordinary working class people and so on and so on and so on.
1: That's the key. Here's the thing that... Uh, that I worry about. I I um I'm sort of a a wannabe Marxist, which means that I'm I'm like a a true believer because I struggle to yes, understand so Marx. In my heart, yes. yeah. Like I struggle to understand Marx, like a Christian struggles to live like Christ. Now, but you, we
0: can do it better because no authentic Christian understands Christ. That's clear. Okay, but yeah, yeah.
1: So you you uh, call yourself a Marxist uh, as well, but um. I wonder if you're a Marxist in the way that uh, a true believer in Christianity would be uh, a Christian. In other words, like, if you're a Christian and you're a true believer, you're a literal believer, you have to believe that Christ died on the cross and then uh, rose from the dead. And yes. for, for a Marxist, you have to believe in the labor theory of value, that that's true so I want to ask you, do you hold with Marx's labor theory of value, or try to, like a good it's Christian?
0: It's problem, and there is a great debate. Moshe Poston did some contributions in the U.S., some new German Marxist economists did it. Mm-hmm. You know who even avoided this question? My good friend David Hardy. Mm-hmm. I had a debate with him in, where was it? I think in, uh, in, at, at Birkbeck College, yes. And I asked him, okay, labor theory of value, yes or no? And he squeezed out, you know, right. I think it can be saved, but, uh, we have to totally desubstantialize it. Harvey knows this. German new Marxist knows it, you know, it's, uh, it has to be desubstantialized in the sense that it's not literally that, uh, my work individually gives something to a commodity that I'm producing. Labor theory of value, uh, Relates simply to the unit. Uh, 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 commodities have value only as commodities within the exchange and so on. And Marx is very clear here, although he is not properly read. Second thing to do, where we have to elaborate further labor theory of value, is I think that Marx was too fast in linking it to a certain temporality. You know, you must know if you are Marxist, this notion of how complex labor can be reduced to simple labor, which can be measured by temporality. That I find a little bit uh, problematic. We have to change this. And uh, the third point, we have to radically rethink the notion of proletariat, working class and so on. Today, there are so many new phenomena, unemployed people, people who live outside, refugees and so on, precarious workers and so on. Isn't it the supreme irony that today, to be a proletarian in the old Marxist sense, you are permanently employed in a big factory, okay, you get your benefits, retirement, but you are alienated, you work nine hours per day. Isn't this almost a privilege today? It's more and more the happy few who can get this. So here I agree with Fred Jameson that uh, we have to (laughs) redefine the position of uh, 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 proletariat. Next point Mm -hmm. that I repeat often in my books. uh, If you take labor theory of value in a too dogmatic and immediate way, and I often use, maybe you know, this example in my talks to provoke people, then you should say, okay, I wrote this 10 years ago, now the uh, confusion is total, that United States were, um, uh, were exploiting Venezuela. Listen, Marx emphasizes that labor is the only source of value and that exploitation is ultimately exploitation of labor force. Mm-hmm. You know which example Marx uses to demonstrate how natural resources as such don't have, don't possess value? Oil, of course, of all examples. Mm -hmm. So again, in order to claim that, what if I am a vulgar Marxist and claim that Chavez was basically exploiting American or other workers and simply bribing his own working class with Profits from selling oil profits, which are pure result of exploitation and so on and so on. Although Of course, I don't agree with it, but it's a Complication it is an authentic complication, and I try to answer this complication with this limits of market logic that we
1: witness today for example example, Let me me just jump in real quick so that's okay Um, So the reason I brought up the labor theory of value is because if you hold with that and you're a vulgar Marxist like I tend to be, then you're going to think that Keynesian spending isn't going to produce a situation of stability. That it will lead to perhaps could even lead to crisis in this moment where we where we have a decline in profitability. So, like I believe in that the in the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. I believe in the labor theory of value. You know, I'm a good Christian boy, and so uh, so I worry that um, uh, the populist answers on the left, uh, while being much better than the populist answers on the right, when it comes to. Uh, issues yeah. around racism and immigration and yeah, yeah, that, but but are are actually too similar to the to the populist right and will lead to a crisis that we're not going to be able to handle and i mean a good example is what happened to Syriza the the you know their keynesian approach to the economic crisis just blew up in their face they were not able to even implement it
0: no, sorry. with Syriza i think the situation is even much more tragic you know Everyone was waiting for their plan B. Like, what will they do if European Union will not not make a pact with them? And we all eagerly awaited, do they have any, did Varoufakis invent any intelligent measure or whatever, you know? Obviously, they didn't have it. So for me, Syriza, it's the Supreme, their big capitulation, you know? You win the referendum, next day... You surrender, you make the compromise. But again, I'm not accusing them for betrayal and so on. When you say Keynesianism, but they even didn't get a chance to practice Keynesianism. I don't believe in Keynesianism. Here Varoufakis convinced me that doing the Grexit, national sovereignty, printing money, and so on, would immediately trigger an even greater, more catastrophic uh, 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 hunger, even social chaos, and so on and so on. So the result of Syriza, for me, the point is that you cannot find... <coughs> <coughs> sorry. You cannot fight global capitalism at the level of nation-state. All these uh, new, newly discovered leftist na- na- nation nation-state orientation, you know. We step out and so on. We uh, national sovereignty, it doesn't work. I think the only answer is my hope. Maybe I'm too utopian here. Let's say that somehow as a reaction to Trump, there will be stronger in the Democratic Party, a little bit of a move to the left, uh, Sanders and so on. Let's say that maybe a new European left will emerge and uh, I think that when we all protest towards this, TIPP, TISA, all these international trade agreements, our answer should be new, different agreements. If the left gains enough strength in the developed Western countries, it can, but it must be a larger international scope. It can enforce some measures, financial control and so on, which maybe can lead somewhere, but back to your basic point. Uh, yes, but beneath all this, I as am a, a Christian, I am to refer to your metaphor a Christian but with even greater doubts into existence of God. That is to say, but a horrible question, but do we have a new model? What do we want? Yeah. Apart from these vague Canadian ideas, more for health c- care, invest, blah, blah, and I agree with you here, the left lost its vision. We know that uh, uh, that Stalinist state left doesn't work, although even there, things are more complicated. complicated, because as I always like to emphasize, did you notice that the communists in some countries where they are still in power, like China and Vietnam, they seem to be the best managers of libera, of the wildest, brutal ca- liberal capitalism, you know. So that's another topic. But what I wanted to say is that the left is lacking, I think, what, what Fred Jameson calls cognitive mapping. Like, what's the vision?
1: What do we want? Well, and, I think I it's think... important to, to figure out whether or not we, and, and figure out if we hold with the labor theory of value and how or what we think of it, in order to figure out what we want because... No, but uh, let me add something to labor
0: theory of value. Okay. You know where I see problems? Look at these new rich guys who, as I read them, became so rich by privatizing some part of our commons. Like, look at, for example, Microsoft. All their Windows programs and so on. He... Bill Gates or the company, I don't think it's correct to say that he's exploiting his workers. Because it's clear, I read books about Microsoft, that how much they charge you for the latest Windows and so on. It has no relation with production costs. He doesn't think like this, oh, it costed me so much and then I add this profit rate. It's rent,
1: right? I mean, that's where you're going. It's It's rent. rent. Yes, but that's, that and that fits see. within the labor but theory of value. Marx it wrote it. Go ahead. Sorry, say, but that fits within that. A, that fits within Marx's, you know, a critique of political economy. He has a, a, you know, as you know, he he covers rent as a as a form of capital, and it relates to his labor theory of value. It's not a it's not a refutation of it. It fits within his his. Yeah, mind. but
0: nonetheless, for Marx, rent was the first stage. Now, I don't think we have a good Marxist theory of this, some Italians tried it, I'm not totally convinced by them, of this new new return of the rent. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we still refer here to the labor theory of value, we must do it in a much more general sense. It's not that I, as a worker, am exploited by Bill Gates. It's more that I, as a worker, participate in certain commons, like the commons of cyberspace, the commons or whatever. And the big threat today, one of the threats is the privatization of these commons. That's what I see as a danger in all these new phenomena of, how do they call it, uh, the uh, 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 new forms of capitalism, which some people even see in it, uh, like people like Jeremiah Rifkin, uh, the first signs of post-capitalist universe. I... Like even some leftists in my country even praise Uber, the taxis, uh-huh. no? This is really some worker self-organization and so on and so on. I think it's not. And I think that we have to accept, here I'm an old-fashioned, harshline state Marxist, that all this cyberspace, whatever, spaces of commons, need some political state control. I don't believe that if they're left alone, if we abolish capital, they will happily thrive in their plurality and so on and so on and so on. You don't get rid of politics and power in such an easy way. That would be my lesson for Marxism today. We need to rethink state power. We don't need more local self-determination, you know, all that happy dream of local communities where people decide their way. No, what we need today, just think about financial capital, think about ecological threats and so on. We need somehow to reinvent mega large-scale coordinated
1: Actions, decisions. I, and I completely agree with you, Silvoy. I You know, w- w- you and I might disagree a bit about how to interpret the labor theory of value, but on this, we completely agree. Oops, I cannot go into
0: it now. I also have some more to
1: say. That, but can I tell you another thing? Okay. Well, I, what, I, can I ask you a question? Maybe you can work in what you're. I'm sorry. About yeah. I'm very sorry. Okay. So yes. I just want to say, I want to say, I want to mention the title of your book again: "Against the Double Blackmail," uh, which is the whole justification for this conversation. Um. And I, I want to say that, you know, one of your, one of the strengths of that book is that it, it tries to open up a space for serious conversation in a, in a time when it seems very difficult to take responsibility politically and to, to allow ourselves to, to think things through to the end. And I guess my question is, have you found that things are getting, that they, that the reaction to your work is, um, uh, It just seemed to me, I don't know, from the outside, it seems like you're having a rough time and that people are less and less willing to hear what you say. You know what brings me some
0: satisfaction, but at the same time, it's pretty sad. Okay, of course, I will name no names. I don't want to embarrass people. But do you know how many people leftists privately tell me, look, I agree with you, but just I cannot afford to tell it publicly. It's quite sad. And you know what people don't get? Here I was a little bit perplexed. For example, wasn't it clear with that unfortunate LGBT polemics and so on? The time at all the level of practical measures totally for them. I know LGBT people. I deeply sympathize with the horror of their predicament. I just claim that the way, and I even say that they are not perverted, marginals, when Lacan says there is no sexual relationship and so on, they (laughs) are the privileged side which embodies this truth and so on and so on. I just claim that the way this topic is inscribed into our identity politics is politically wrong, theoretically wrong, and so on and so on. So not only am I not in any, I'm not playing this, Game we heterosexuals are the true thing and we should tolerate minorities. No, I theoretically ground in what sense in LGBT doubts something comes up, which is the oppressed truth, if you want it, of so-called standard heterosexual normal uh, practices and so on and so on. Just, for example, to give you one uh, aspect of this ideology often, and I know that Judith Butler is aware of this problem, this theory that gender identity is not biologically determined, you know, is often read in a fake, playful way. Oh, this means we can float around today, I'm gay, tomorrow I'm heterosexual, blah, blah. No, I mean, uh, sexual, the way you experience your sexual identity, is something extremely harsh, traumatic. You don't have a free choice in this simple sense. I will just play with my identity and so on. That's why LGBT people suffer so much. For them, what they experience as their sexual identity, although it's uh, not biologically determined, it's so forceful that they are ready to undergo biological operations and so on and so on. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not free choice in this cheap sense, oh, today, today I'm gay, tomorrow I'm another thing, and so on. Sexual identity is something that defines you, defines you. It's not simply, it's not like today I eat chocolate cake, tomorrow I eat strawberry cake and so on. It's what you are. This is why I don't like this playful approach. We performatively construct our identities and so on and so on and so on. That's my first thing. My second thing is that uh, uh, although I'm often attacked for it, but it's not uh, like, uh, you know, when you have all this, this, like I think that there is something that's a theoretical point, but LGBT people with their suffering know that it's true. You know, the problem with sexual identity is not simply if you have these two big identities, plus heterosexual, masculine, feminine, then my true identity is oppressed. So if we replace it with a long enough list, gay, books, whatever, each person will find his, her, their place there and so on. No, the conflict is much more radical. I don't want to make it easy. And I was a little bit shocked at why people exploded so forcefully why do you against think?
1: Why do you think they did that? I mean, it, my theory is that people um, are reluctant to have any of their progressive ideas criticized because they're not confident about them and that, that rather... I also not- think
0: that is the only explanation that they themselves must they themselves must know that, to put it in very simple terms, that it's not as easy as that. The second point is nonetheless, you know the uh, another thing that shocked me is that if I just mention working class economic suffering, I'm immediately accused of, of, of class essentialism. But you know, I think when identity politicians propose this triad, race, sex, class. it sounds nice, but definitely, uh, empirically, there is very little study of class. If there is a study of class, it's somehow drowned in 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 not so much in sex as in race, like black exploited and so on and so on and so on. I'm not now. Uh, you know now. Let me specify my position. Now I'm writing a text on it. Of course, I'm not a class essentialist in the stupid sense that only economic struggle ultimately matters and so on and so on. I'm here a good dialectician where the point is that uh, in the dynamic of class, like we have black exploitation, but sometimes in a specific constellation, class struggle appears, is masked as race struggle so in this situation to bypass race and to say no race is not really important is just economy it's precisely a way to cover up the most radical dimension of class struggle so i'm not denying that in certain constellations race struggle sex struggle can be crucial but the over determining factor is for me let's call it economic power struggle or whatever I I still, I remain here, um, if you ask me, an old-fashioned Marxist. And incidentally, returning to your point of a Christian, a Christian believes that uh, Christ will rise again, no? Which Christian? Here, I am a radical atheist Protestant. No, Christ already returned in in the, you know, I always quote that famous passage, it's beautiful in the Bible, when? After Christ's death or before? Some uh, pupils ask him, but how we will know that you returned? And he says, when there is love between two of you, I am there. I take this literally. All that bullshit in in Gospel of, of, of John, I think that one should be in the most ruthless Stalinist way uh, erased, you know. All, I mean, second coming is here in the Holy Spirit, which is precisely the spirit of believers without any guarantee in God. God is dead. That's why the greatest Christian legacy is our freedom. Our freedom means precisely you cannot count on God. The only thing we have is Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is for me the ultimate uh, materialist notion. You know, and that's what is different in Christianity from other religions when God sends a prophet, but then calls him back. Maybe he sends another prophet. No, this game is over with Christianity. As Hegel put it, what dies on the cross is not... A messenger of God. It's God himself. All that remains, but that's another story. I'm losing time, sorry. But but you must admit it, again, how, you know what, how uh, this, uh, I think that uh, the problem with, uh, 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 ah, okay, let me tell you, give you another example. Because of, against the double blackmail, I was often accused for, for Islamophobia. But you know the miracle that I learned now, I will make a tour there. You know that that Against Double Blackmail and four other books were recently illegally, illegally in the sense of without copyright, I don't care about that, where are now very popular among the new Arab left in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Tunis, and so on. So they definitely don't experience it as... Islamophobic. They want to invite me there and so on. I will make a tour there. So it's this paradoxical situation where white liberals want to protect poor Arabs from, from my Islamophobia, but Arabs like what I'm doing, my God, you know. It's, it's a totally crazy, it's a totally crazy situation. So back to your big Trump question. Listen, I don't have any problem uh, uh, changing my opinion, it was not a big principle opinion. It was maybe a wrong empirical judgment. What I'm only saying, let me give an example that I often use, it should be nice to your public, I like it. You know what's the the way to encapsulate the tragedy of today's left? Did you see the movie V for Vendetta? Then you must know my joke, which is, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery to see a movie called V for Vendetta, part two. Part one ends with the people storming the parliament. Fuck it, but what happens then, the next day? What measures do they take, you know? As I always emphasize, I'm more and more tired of these big revolutionary events in the sense of one million people on Tahrir Square or on Syntagma Square, blah, blah. Fuck it. The only thing that interests me is what happens... uh, what happens, as they say, the day after, when life returns to normal? What changes do people feel, experience? What changes are enacted at that level? That's what interests me more and more. I, I'm tired of big events.
1: I worry that we're still stuck in this uh, realm of cultural critique and aren't looking at the economy deeply enough. But yeah,
0: but I, nonetheless, Bernie
1: Sanders happened. Yeah. It's a small event, but he
0: did a miracle here. Right. Nobody would, literally a miracle. A miracle in the sense that what was considered impossible happened. Nobody thought this could happen. And I also agree that, although I always was a little bit suspicious about Occupy Wall Street, but Occupy Wall Street did, in some sense, lay the foundation for this, you know. Things sometimes, even if they are not immediately a success in the long term, they can contribute to. This is where also I would answer another of your questions when you said, but all this redistribution and so on, isn't it Keynesian limited? No, my hope is here much more cynical, manipulative. Yes, but you have to begin somewhere. Things have to start to move. You do this and then you will see that you have to do more and more and more. My... my The big priority today (coughs) is to get things moving. And here, with all my criticism of Obama, as I like to point out, I, I even have some small sympathy for Obama. Listen, his Obamacare was a scam, blah, blah. But he did trigger something, an extremely important debate, which is why, as you know, Republicans even brought him to Supreme Court or whatever and so on. You know, we have to begin... We have to fight for small tasks. Okay, Obamacare is not a small task, but a precise topic which appear innocent. Oh, what's the problem? Why not do that? But they trigger a process. And I'm not saying that now you can tell me, but what will be the result? Ah, here is my pessimism, because people often tell me, if all that you are saying is true, we are in deep shit and so on. Why not simply become, I invented now this term, I love it. A left Fukuyamaist, you know, like we basically endorse Fukuyama vision, liberal capitalism with some health care, social welfare is the only thing we have. And we just try to make it better. Well, my problem is, and I repeat this point again and again in my books, that if you look at the overall picture today with all the problems, ecology, biogenetics, financial capital, intellectual property, refugees, it will not work in the long term. I think it will be either some kind of reinvented, more radical left. Of course, not communism in the stupid sense of a new communist regime, but communism in the sense of approaching commons in a new way. Or or what? I believe in Hollywood here. Or the, the picture of image of near future depicted again and again in Hunger Games in in Elysium and so on and so on, you know. One should do a good, although I don't simply celebrate these movies, there is something wrong about them, but one should really do something about what does this mean, this almost obsession now with this uh, dystopian near future. Because although it's in a way right, I still, I smell shit there. Something is at the same time false in it, you know.
1: Well, listen, I I want to ask you one last question. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, I just want to let you know that if you continue to offend everyone on the left, you always can come here and talk.
0: I would love to come again to Portland. My God, just to visit after or before my talk, to visit the bookstore.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So just your book's title, it's called Against the Double Blackmail. Yeah. What is the double blackmail?
0: On the one hand, this right-wing blackmail, of course. Right wing blackmail in the sense of, at least in Europe, our European civilization is threatened, immigrants are a danger and so on and so on. And the other blackmail is for me, this standard leftist liberal humanitarian reaction, this moral blackmail. Refugees are suffering. It's, you know what is so shocking today? A friend of mine made this wonderful remark. Till now, usually, Right wingers were naturalizing the situation. Oh, it's just natural to suffer catastrophes. Market is a natural thing. Leftists were politicizing. Europe, in Europe now, paradoxically, it is. The right wing, which is politicizing the situation. No refugees are part of a dark plot, blah, blah. And it's the left which is uh, moralizing and naturalizing it. It's a big catastrophe. Forget about politics. I agree it's a big catastrophe. But I don't think that we will approach this catastrophe in a proper way if we treat it just as a humanitarian question, we have to address the causes, our own causes. It's clear, I wrote about this in the book, how we, with with the West, with our interventions, we created a mess in the Near East. But also, you know, let's not patronize the Arabs. They are not just innocent, passive victims. They have their own visions. And that's that's the tragedy. The biggest tragedy, one of the biggest geopolitical tragedies of the last half a century for me is the disappearance of secular left in most of the Arab countries. So uh, what I think is that we have to radically repoliticize, set it in its economic, political, geopolitical context, the question of the refugees. What worries me is this translation into a pure humanitarian problem. Millions are coming. Are we still humans? And so on and so on. No, the problem is political, economical, and so on and so on. And there, nothing is changing. It's, so this, I am a, if you ask me, I am a moderate pessimist here. I don't have great expectations here.
1: What do you find for yourself is more difficult? Imagining the end of capitalism or imagining the end of the world?
0: Oh, as all normal bourgeois individuals know, It's much easier to imagine the end of the world. One even finds a certain, because you know, this end of the world, it's almost never a full end of the world. You have at the end this utopian moment on another planet or on a scorched earth, how a new authentic community is formed and so on and so on, you know. It's much more beautiful to do this than to imagine in all its complexity even the basic moves of how to overcome capitalism. But it will have to be done again, because it's clear. Here I agree with all those, although not generally, but with with like Jeremiah Rifkin and so on. Something tremendous is happening today in capitalism. It is already self-overcoming. It's no longer the old capitalism and so on. So uh, again, uh, unfortunately, I'm almost saying unfortunately, because... Great problems are ahead. You know, the greatest utopia for me is not to imagine the end of capitalism. The greatest utopia is to think that just with a little bit of austerity, control, don't exaggerate, we will somehow survive it. Life will go on the way it does. No, it will not.